Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. We have a listener of the week, Core Africa. Liz Fanning, the executive director, is a longtime nonprofit radio listener. And Core Africa just announced an investment of $59,400,000 over five years from MasterCard Foundation. And I think, let's just call it $60 million because the difference is a mere $600,000, which is a trifling 1%. Core Africa, congratulations to you. This is such a testament to the amazing, valuable work of the Core Africa volunteers throughout the continent, the dedication of the staff, and the commitment of the board. Core Africa is going to expand to 11 countries with this new investment. Congratulations, Core Africa. I am so happy for you and happy to make you this week's Nonprofit Radio Listener of the Week. Congratulations. Plus, we have a new sponsor. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd bear the pain of iridoxesis if I had to see that you missed this week's show. Okay, Boomer, move over. In only two years, millennials will make up 75% of the global workforce. Along with Gen Z, these will soon be the majority of your workers, your donors, your volunteers. Think sustainability. Are you engaging them now? Are they fully represented on your board? Gene Takagi talks us through the implications around philanthropy, technology, fundraising, and more. He's our legal contributor and the principal of Neo Law Group. On Tony's Take Two, 23NTC. We're sponsored by DonorBox. Welcome to DonorBox. Thank you so much for joining the Nonprofit Radio family. Very, very glad to have you. Thank you. With intuitive fundraising software from DonorBox, your donors give four times faster. Helping you help others. DonorBox.org. Here is OK Boomer, move over. It's a pleasure to welcome back Gene Takagi. You know who he is, but he deserves a proper intro. Nonetheless, he's our legal contributor and managing attorney of NEO, the nonprofit and exempt organizations law group in San Francisco. He edits the wildly popular nonprofitlawblog.com and is a part-time lecturer at Columbia University. The firm is at neolawgroup.com and he's at GTAC. Gene, such a good, uh, such a pleasure to see you. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thanks so much, Tony. Great to see you as well. My pleasure, always. Now, when we last talked, uh, we were with Amy Sample Ward, and there was uh, a discussion that included the, uh, the the potential decline of Twitter and the rise of some alternatives. Are you still at GTAC on Twitter, and and are you any other place that that uh, I should be acknowledging? 
I'm still active on Twitter. Um, I'm uh, hedging a little and, and I'm on Mastodon and Post, but those are, are sort of lightly used, but I, I post daily on all those channels. Okay. So still stick with, uh, still Twitter the best way to uh, to reach you, you think? Probably if you want to see most of my content, Twitter is going to be the best way to see it. Okay. Okay. Stick with that for now. All right. Millennials and uh, and Generation Z, you're you're concerned about the future for these folks. What, uh, well, high level view, what's concerning you? Well, it's less concerned about these folks versus concerned about nonprofits for not engaging these folks. Because in a few short years, by 2030, millennials and Gen Z will make up 75% of our workforce. They're, they've just crossed over the 50% barrier, I think, um, a couple years ago. But within seven years, 75% of our workforce, that's a huge change in our, in our workplace demographics. Yeah. And, and we're, not, uh, we're not accommodating these folks. You're concerned about, uh, for instance, board membership, um, significant employment issues. What, what, what would you like to... I'm going to give you the first shot. I, 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 let's change things up because uh, I, sometimes I feel like an autocrat. So <laughs> what, would, what, would, what would you like to talk, first, uh, talk about first that nonprofits are just not paying sufficient attention to? Sure. Well, I, maybe I'll just go without sort of criticizing nonprofits. Let's just like say, why should we as nonprofits engage millennials and Gen Z? Yes, they, they're going to make up a majority of our workforce, but what else does that mean? Um, and, you know, when, when they make up a majority of the workforce, I, I think I'm also saying, and I, I don't have the studies to back this one up, but I'm also saying eventually it goes to say uh, that they're going to make up a majority of our donors. They're going to make up a majority of the beneficiaries that we're helping they're going to make up a majority of all of our supporters and our collaborators. And eventually, our generation, boomers, Gen X, eventually yeah, we're going to yeah. kind of be <laughs> not leading some of these places. Although I, I saw a really interesting article in The Atlantic um, a month or two ago that said um, people our age, relatively young, Tony, still, still, but I'm a young, uh, I'm a young boomer. I don't mind. I'm 61. So I'm, yeah. I'm among, among the youngest boomers. And I'm very close in, in age to you, Tony. And um, it, the Atlantic article said that persons our age and even a little bit younger tend to think like we're about 20% younger than we actually are. We kind of resonate with our, maybe not our, our sort of calendar date, but we feel like we're we're a, a younger group by about twenty yeah, percent. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel even younger than than twenty percent. I feel like more like forty. Yeah, and I, mean, I, I twenty years like tw so twenty twenty one years younger. What I mean, I feel the same way. But it occurred to me in my head that maybe that's why groups of leaders that are thinking about engaging younger people are not placing such importance in it because we think, well, we kind of understand that group anyway. We feel around that age. But right. when we start to when we start to think about it, well, maybe there are some differences and maybe their perspectives and their skill sets and their experiences are going to really add value to our organizations. Yeah. And, and it, it's not even it's not even maybe. I mean they will. Right. But, exactly. But we need to, you know, it's time for us to sort of move aside. Um 
But yeah, now it's very interesting, Gene, that you know our own self-perception may be confounding the larger the larger culture, slowing uh, holding holding back the larger cultural changes. You know, just because I feel like I'm 40 doesn't mean that I have the awareness of technology, politics, the culture that a 40-year-old has. Yeah, exactly right. And certainly not ones that I can tell you from personal experience, like from my nieces, certainly not those at 20-year-olds. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm not um, even claiming. Right, of course, of course. I, I just uh, recall my nieces telling me the smiley face emoji is passive-aggressive when I use that in text messaging, so I have to watch myself in our communications. So. It is, I see. Okay, I, had, I, I have my own anecdote about uh, a story I used to tell that is now deemed uh, misogynistic. But I, I was telling it for years in, in professional settings, not just in stand-up comedy, but in professional settings. Um, yeah. No, the, you're right. Our, our, all right. So we have to get past our own self-perceptions and uh, think about the larger culture, economy, nonprofit sector. All right. All right. All right. So help us. I don't know. Are we talking? Or I guess I guess we're talking here to the to the to the uh, the obstructionists. We're talking here to the boomers, are we? Move aside. <laughs> uh, you know, a little bit. Um, I think we and, are. I feel like we are. Yeah, um, Dean, especially to the extent that um, if you're on a board or if you're in an organization where you, your leadership is dominated by by boomers um, like ourselves, then then you know maybe we have to think a little bit more about um, sharing power and authority and other things, and not just to look better, like take a better photograph of our leadership. Yeah. Right. But, you know, for all for all of these specific reasons. So I'll just raise a few right now. Um, the laws changed. And if the voting citizenry is changing in demographics, the laws are going to change to what they want them to change as you know, within constitutional limits, of course, but even the constitutional interpretation is going to change as our Supreme Court starts to to get younger and i'll cross my fingers a little bit on that um but you know what is charitable um you know it started off as kind of relief of the poor that's what's built into our regulations and then kind of expanded into maybe well civil rights can be charitable under 501c3 um and then you know it expanded although it's not even stated in the regulations the promotion of health being a 501c3 purpose and protection of the environment um, although I recall I put in an application um, for a charity maybe 10, 15 years ago where global warming was something they wanted to combat. And the IRS asked, or at least this agent asked, you know, uh, have you really looked into both sides of that issue? Because maybe if you're just posing one point of view that it's not charitable or educational at all. So, you know, our ideas have certainly evolved over what is and isn't charitable, and they will continue to evolve with younger people now, again, making up some of the decisions of these. And if we're not anticipating these changes, then we're going to be reactive, slow to react, possibly, and less competitive um, in a very increasingly competitive field where philanthropy is also changing, right? What is philanthropy? Is it private foundations like it used to be? Um, we oh. certainly know about donor advised funds. Yeah, please, Tony. Yeah, no. Before we before we advance there, because that is a rich topic, the different forms of philanthropy. But sticking with 
you know, regulations. What what is a charity? What is, what is charity? Uh, you know, that all that all depends on the the, the our, our political leaders. Uh, you know, recognizing that there's because uh, I'm I'm basing it on you know uh, U.S. code and U.S. regulations promulgated by the by the the, the different departments of of the federal government and and state governments. You know, those are all promulgated promulgated by legislatures and uh, and I don't use this pejoratively bureaucrats. You know, pu- public service workers in in government and if. You know, I, I, I see the politics being especially slow to change. I don't know what I don't know what the average age is of a U.S. senator or U.S. Uh, representative, but I'm 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 certain I'm certain it's not I'm certain it's not in the 40s. I, I'd, be, I'd be very surprised if it's in the 40s even. Yeah, I agree. So our political system may be the slowest sort of of the sectors to sort of change, although a lot of them are responsive to money, right? Um, And we've been talking in kind of fundraising fields about the intergenerational transfer of wealth, the greatest ever in, in, you know, in the history uh, of recorded civilization. Yeah. Um, I mean, okay. So, right. So the boomers do have some value. Leave, leave us your money. Leave, leave your money behind. We need to, we need to execute. we, We need that wealth to execute change. And, you know, as the boomers sort of sort of age out, the money is just being transferred into younger generations. And with that money, now they're going to influence political power as well. I'm a little cynical on this, but yes, money will sort of make changes or result in changes in the law, including in terms of what is charitable. And just sort of to give you a hot topic, um, when we talk about relief of the poor and civil rights being charitable, I don't think that providing reparations to historically discriminated against or oppressed groups is considered charitable. But will that change over time? I don't think selling solar energy at market rates is considered charitable to the general public. But will that change over time? I think these things can change fairly rapidly within a generation. So these are things that organizations need to pay attention to. It's time for a break. Stop the drop with DonorBox. How many potential donors drop off before they finish making the donation on your website? You can stop the drop and break that cycle with DonorBox's ultimate donation form. You add it to your website in minutes. No coding required. <laughs> no batteries required. When you stop the drop, potential donors become donors. With a four times faster checkout and more convenient ways to give from leading payment processors, apps, and popular digital wallets. There's no setup fees, no monthly fees, and no contract required. And (laughs) this is amazing. You'll be joining over 40,000 U.S. nonprofits. DonorBox. Helping you help others, donorbox.org. Now back to, okay, Boomer, move over. Interesting. Those are two really interesting ones, reparations and, and alternative energy. Why did you, why did you, uh, I, I'm digressing a little bit. Why did you specifically say selling solar energy at market rates? 
Well, I, you know, I think, again, when we're talking about relief of the poor, we're also sort of expanding that into economic development in, you know, historically disadvantaged areas. So, mm -hmm. you know, blighted areas, areas that need sort of more economic development. Bringing solar into those areas at, at sort of at low cost may stimulate economic development as well as have sort of the environmental benefit that solar can bring. That would probably qualify as charitable even now. Um, but if you start to sell it at market rates and go into expensive neighborhoods and tell people to convert their, you know, their energy sources um, or to, you know, buildings, uh, first class buildings in downtown and saying, hey, change okay. your energy source as a charity, that might have a tremendous impact on climate change and other things. Um, if we could get big companies to change and put it into their buildings, if charities could influence that, that might have a huge impact, but it probably wouldn't be considered charitable right now. I see. Okay. Uh, okay. Good. I'm, I'm glad I asked. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, uh, reparations. That it, it is kind of easy to see that in, in 10 years that reparations to... African Americans, Asian Americans, Latin Americans, that that those those that subject could be on the table for 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 charitable for as a charitable purpose. Yeah, 10 years ago it was really not even in the discussion outside. No, 10 of, years ago, no, but 10 years groups. from 10, 10 years from now. Exactly. I mean I I think we're I think we're we're in I think the next 10 to 15 years are going to be considerable Political upheaval, cultural upheaval. I mean, there's, there's a, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe because, because I'm living in it, so I'm, I, ex, I'm experiencing it as more volatile, uh, and I don't mean that pejoratively, more, more revolutionary than the transfer of wealth and uh, power and prestige from other, other generations to, to ours. I don't. Maybe because I'm I'm the one surrendering the power. Maybe I see it as more more of more of a cultural shift than than the past. Maybe the past has been significant as well. Yeah, you know, and, and it's interesting. So you know, if you were to look up articles on engaging millennials and Gen Z, you know, they'll they'll mention like different perspectives, but they'll also mention something like they've got a greater passion for social justice and things of that nature. And, you know, I, I agree to some extent that that is true. I think we can see that. But then when I think back, you know, to the sort of the older boomers and, you know, the hippies in the 60s, well, maybe everybody when they were younger was just a little bit more uh, into, you know, the environment and social justice and racial justice. And as you age, you know, again, taking a little bit of a cynical viewpoint, and certainly not to, to sort of overgeneralize, but as a big, broad group, you know, you become a little bit less, a little bit more resistance to radical changes, um, you know, especially if you're in, in a comfortable situation, you're privileged enough not to have to worry about it in your own life. The changes that you're pushing for maybe are not as radical as when you were in your 20s. Um, um, and you, I think you see that throughout the world, some major, major social movements led by sort of college aged kids um, or young adults. Um, and they're the ones that are putting it all on the line. Your exact point has been driven home to me lately because I've been watching uh, a lot of Woodstock videos on YouTube. 
And I'm thinking, I'm, you know, when when they're when they're showing the audience, you know, first of all, it's, it's fantastic because I'm watching Jimi Hendrix and The Grateful Dead, and but you know, when they when they're panning into the audience, I'm thinking, are these folks the, the folks who were sitting there in the in the muck? You know, they're now in their 70s and 80s. That was uh, that, uh, Woodstock was August of 1969. So if you were 20, 25 or so, you know, you're 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 into your 70s, and and if you were a little older, you're into your 80s. Uh, talk about yeah, perspective shifting from 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 when you were in your twenties and thirties. Yeah, and you know we're the same people, but you know yeah. life life changes and our perspectives change. And even though we identify with some of the the perspectives that younger people bring, we they're they're still different. You know, as we sort of admitted uh, at the start of it, and so yeah, just so many changes. Um, that they have a different feel for or that they place with a different importance in terms of um, in climate change is maybe a classic example of climate change may not do as much to an 80 year old in terms of their personal life um but to a 20 year old climate change may completely impact their adulthood and you know whether they are below the water where they live or um, so, you know, obviously they're going to, they're going to have a greater incentive to, to ask for more radical change and, yeah. and you know, well, like hopefully that. these, these folks, the, the older boomers and the world war two generation, I mean, hopefully they're thinking of their ancestors, uh, coming, um, no ancestors are in your, your past. They're thinking of their, their heirs and, and children and grandchildren. I, I, I mean, at least the ones I I talk to I I think are considering those you know the, considering the future. Um, yeah, I, I I think I'm sorry, Tony. Go ahead. No, finish your point, and then I want to I want to drill down a little more to a little more detail. But go ahead, please make your point. Sure, I, I was thinking that it, it had been sort of a, a customary thought amongst um, older generations to want things better for your kids, that yeah. your kids would have a better life than than you. But I think right now we're kind of in the generation, the kids' generation that are coming up, like the Gen Zs, where that probably is not true, at least economically. Um, at least economically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're you're right. We're not. No, I agree. Uh, all right, so you started to talk about uh, different forms of philanthropy that, uh, I don't know, I'll call them M's and Z's, uh, for millennials and Gen Z. I know in your, your blog post, you call them younger people. Um, I'll, I'll call them M's and Z's, but different forms of philanthropy, like donor advised funds, LLCs, we're right. They're they're engaging a lot differently than direct gifts to 501c3 nonprofits. Yeah, I mean, which places nonprofits, charitable nonprofits, the 501c3 organizations uh, in a place of competition for dollars? Yeah. Um, so it's something again that nonprofits need to understand. Well, what is the value proposition they offer? Because I'm I'm a really starch advocate of nonprofits being something very, very special and very different from a social enterprise that's a for-profit. And social enterprise actually was a co-opted term, I think. Social enterprises used to refer to nonprofits like Goodwill that were engaged in sort of earned income revenues, but now it's sort of been co-opted by the for-profit sector of for-profits that do social good or social enterprises when that's sort of a primary reason uh, for their their operation and their their existence. Um, so, 
you know, these models are changing um, and millennials and Gen Zs are saying, you know, we're a little bit more sector agnostic in terms of doing social good. We could put it into a private foundation, but they probably don't want to. We might use it to ask because it's temporary and we don't have to throw everything into it. What about an LLC like Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan, like the Chan Zuckerberg uh, initiative, um, the Emerson Collective, which is Steve Jobs' um, uh, widow's uh, um you know, charitable vehicle or philanthropic vehicle. So those are LLCs and, you know, you can go into a whole show about that. GoFundMe is sort of an alternative to giving to charities. A lot of people, especially in the millennial and Gen Z age, think giving directly to a beneficiary is the way to go bypass charity. Um, C4s, we saw um, the Patagonia founder, um, Yvonne Schwinnard, decide I'm going to give, leave much of my wealth to a C4 and I'll do it now. And there's planning reasons to do that with gift and estate tax deductions being much more valuable to someone like him than an income tax deduction. When you're like a tech entrepreneur and you're not taking much of an income, but you have enormous amounts of wealth in stock that have not been um, uh, liquidated yet. So you're sitting on tons of money, but uh, you don't have much of an income tax benefit from giving a donation. Um, just volunteer work and giving data. Data is now, you know, a huge asset and a very valuable one that we're understanding. And personally, we're giving up our own data to a lot of sort of, I accept, um, you know, websites that all of a sudden get to use our data. And I know new laws are coming into that, but volunteering your data can also be an important thing that we have to think about. And so philanthropy and how we think of giving is changing rapidly. And there was a big change in the law just a few years ago in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that left uh, itemized deductors um, that can take get a tax benefit from charitable contribution. It moved from something like 34, 35% down to like less than 13%. Yeah, around 10. So, I yeah. Yeah. yeah, so there's just tremendous changes that can happen very, very quickly. And charities need to understand that. And again, younger perspectives may be on top of some of this news that older generations may not be following this closely, at least some of them. And you're right to characterize these uh, absolutely as, as competitors to our traditional 501c3 nonprofits. And, and so you want to know what your com- you want to know what your competition is doing, what these different forms are. Are, are there, you know, are there ways that you can leverage some of them? You know, maybe it is a subsidiary or some kind of an affiliate relationship. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the knowledge is among the, uh, the M's and the Z's. Yeah, I, I, I agree, Tony. They're, these are not only competitors. They often can be collaborators and allies. Um, but you do need to understand kind of the, the relationships, the multiple relationships that you're going to have with these different types of entities and how that will impact who your supporters are, who your donors are as your donor base or as your you know, subscriber base or as your membership base, as they start to age, are you engaging more younger people? So for sustainability over the future, even if that was like our ultimate goal is to make sure that we have an organization in the future, you've got to engage the younger people that are going to be running this show um in a few short years now some folks may say well i can just uh, if i want to learn about these things i'll just engage a uh, baby boomer attorney and he or she will explain uh, or they will explain the 
will explain this all to us and then we'll but but you're not you know that's <laughs> that's that's not what i agree with but i could see a cynical view well i'll just hire an older attorney they understand llc's versus b corps and well you know the, the you know the, the older advisors may very well understand the 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 intricacies of you know creating one but the creative side of how you can integrate it into your work if you can you know that's that takes someone who's got a different perspective and i think that's i agree with you i mean that's the younger perspective you know how to creatively integrate not just the nuts and bolts of how to llc versus you know engaging a crowdfunding platform you know etc yeah and i think when we talk about negotiating deals with other parties you know have you know if we're not speaking the same language um, and customs and don't have that same type of comfort in talking with the younger generation um you know something can get lost and on their side if they don't have that comfort talking with an older generation if it just doesn't mesh quite as well as when they're talking with a peer in their age group or within yeah. sort of the generational group that can affect the negotiation and you know whether the deal gets done or whether they go with a competitor or whether they you know ask for more things because they trust you less so just you know getting more people involved and if you are going to engage millennials and gen z i really want to make the point that it isn't about just adding a few people in certain positions um it is really uh an understanding and an investment um that you need to make it's something where you have to empower people not just sort of tokenize them or trivialize their importance you really have got to give them uh, in positions of responsibility um and you've got to open up your own culture to sort of embrace the additional sort of cultures and perspectives they can bring so it really can't be just like okay we'll add like a senior manager or we'll add a board member that's you know 32 that that'll solve our problems. Yeah, all won't. the well, all the caveats that you and I talked about when we've talked about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yep. Avoiding tokenism, you know, giving real authority, uh, you know, levers of power, not not just a, a hire here or a or a board member there. It's time for Tony's take two, twenty three NTC. Big big thanks to Heller Consulting. They're sponsoring nonprofit radio at the conference, the Nonprofit Technology Conference, hosted by N10. We will be together in booth 424, Heller Consulting, Nonprofit Radio, me, all three of us sharing booth 424. I will be capturing lots of interviews from the smart speakers at NTC. And you should think about it too. Think about going. You can go hybrid. You heard Amy and me talk about it last week. It really is a very, very good conference. I mean, you can go virtually, virtually. Um, it, it's a very good conference. Smart speakers. It's fun. It's just, it's a very worthwhile conference to go to. You, you will learn. Uh, and of course, we know that this is not only for technologists, but I'm repeating from last week. So all the info is at n10.org. Thank you again, Heller Consulting, for sponsoring Nonprofit Radio at the Nonprofit Technology Conference. Thanks so much. That is Tony's Take Two. 
We've got Buku buttloads more time for OK Boomer move over with Gene Takagi. I'm, I'm taking pleasure in saying, <laughs> I'm, I'm sweeping myself aside. Move over. Let's talk some about the employment, employment changes. You know, I, and, I, and the, the sensibilities that, that the, the M's and the Z's bring. Yeah, and I think that's that's really hitting us um, right now because I think no matter what sector we're in, uh, we realize that employment has changed as a result of the, the COVID pandemic. Um, we're finding out well, where where do workers want to work? How do they want to work? Um, what is of most importance to them? And it's not just sort of um, the the data that we hear, um, you know, um, from from each other, but there are actual studies. And I'll, I'll just point to one: the Deloitte twenty twenty two YZ Global Study. Um, and you know that that's a study by the you know the big accounting firm, and they found out what we probably already know, but cost of living is of tremendous importance um, to, to these younger generations, work-life balance, uh, learning organizations, and what the organization, how what their sort of, not only their viewpoint, but how they operate and its social impact and its environmental impact and its sort of investment in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those are things that matter to those younger generations in terms of in their choice of work, in terms of how long they might stay at a particular company. Um, and, you know, those are things, again, uh, nonprofits are competing now. Um, younger people are also moving from job to job faster than some older generations are used to. Whereas, you know, if, if we go older than us, Tony, a lot of people just worked one job their whole life. Um, and that is certainly not true anymore. Um, and it's even less true now for the younger generations. So if we're competing constantly for employees, what do we know and understand what they want and need and consider important? And what they perceive about us as a place to work. There's, you know, there's there's Glassdoor and 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 those those types of sites, but you know the, the research is so much easier to do, and even when they're when when someone is talking to you about potentially working for you, they're they're taking a lot more clues, you know, than just how much vacation time do I get, you know, what and and what's the what's the medical insurance like, you know, uh, uh, time off, uh, flexible work locations, um, culture. You know, that and culture is a very, you know, that's a very amorphous thing, but folks are sussing it out as they're interviewing you and they're talking to you. And, you know, if they're only meeting people who are 60 and over as they're interviewing, that that, that in itself says a lot about the culture at, at the institution. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just sort of add even younger generation controlled companies um, that, you know, and I'll just use some of the big tech companies that are laying off like huge amounts of, of people right now. That's a cultural thing that people will remember. Um, you know, so if you're quick to lay off and you're still like providing very good returns for your shareholders, um, that may be something employees are going to sort of take into account in terms of whether they would go back to, you know, the same company or whether they would tell their friends to work in that company. And they're much more savvy about 
are companies greenwashing or sort of social good washing and saying, you know, talking the right, you know, talk, but not really walking, you know, that walk. So um, I, I think, uh, again, nonprofits really need to know what their competitive edge might be um, in terms of attracting workers and keeping workers um, because they're dedicated to social good, um, but also what, you know, the, the issues might be if they're not sort of um, promoting the same type of values in their culture and not just sort of, we're, we're a great organization for the environment, but we're terrible to our employees. Like we've, you've got to really make sure your values match. Where else would you like to go, Gene? What, what, what well, do you I, want to talk about? Um, you know, I, I was thinking just a few other quick points. You know, management and governance, I think, are also changing. And that sort of goes with how employees, you know, want to be managed, um, want board of directors to sort of govern organizations. I, you know, our laws and the old and older structures are very hierarchical. Um, you know, the board of directors sits at the top of the organization. They're ultimately in control of all management and direction of the organization's affairs. Um, they delegate it down to a CEO or an executive director, and the executive director then is responsible for all the employees. And there's all these hierarchies of, you know, who gets to to be responsible for whom. Um, and I think younger generations are much more into distributed leadership. Um, and it's possible um, to set up some systems within the law. Uh, the law is not completely sort of um, inflexible about this, uh, but you've got to set it up in the right way. And so there is a balance of what some of the older people can tell you about the restrictions that are involved, but where the younger people could say, hey, these are the things that we really need. We, we don't want just sort of one person di dictating everything about the organization or a board that doesn't know our day-to-day -day business coming in and making huge changes that affects all of our work, you know, work lives. We need to have a voice in this. And this is these are ways that we want you to consider it. So what again, is, that's what does that look like, Gene? Some a model of distributed leadership. So distributed leadership may be delegation from, let's say, from the board down to the CEO and the CEO down to groups of employees and where the CEO is going saying, you're responsible for this. You have the ultimate say on this. I'm not going to veto you as long as it's you know within what our accepted framework is. You get the ultimate say in this. And if the executive director is questioning it, you know, it's not the best business choice they're not going to overrule if that's the basis of it. If, if it's unlawful or something, the executive director figures that out, then of course they would have the power to overrule it. But um, it's not going to just be one person's business judgment. It's going to be groups. And that can work well. And that can also work terribly in a not great way as well. But younger folks are more attuned to that type of you know, leadership model we have to think about how it might work and how to fine tune it in a way that is acceptable and works well for an organization and its, you know, and its board of directors as well to be comfortable with that. And that could even be something on a rotating basis. Yeah, it can it can be. Um, but you know, it actually, you know, one of the sort of big pros about this is it gives collective thought to something that's important where a lot of people get to put input that are intimately involved with that decision. The boards are sometimes somewhat removed because again, they're not in the day-to-day, -day, but this group of employees might actively day-to-day -day be heavily involved with that particular issue. And to give them decision-making authority 
may feel them, you know, um, I'm going to use an old term, but feel, gives them ownership over the organization. They feel like they're empowered and the organization is part of them and they are part of the organization. And that feeling is something I think that people desire. Um, uh, and uh, again, management styles, governance styles are, are changing or, and uh, the desire for more collaborative and distributed leadership is really uh, a big force that I see coming in the next 10 to 20 years. How about um, fundraising? Fundraising, sustainability, you know, you started to touch on both of those, uh, our our donor base, and I'm the guy who's, uh, I'm the evangelist for planned giving, but we have to also acknowledge, I mean, look, the baby boomers are not all dead. You and I are living testament to that. So there is still value in planned giving fundraising, but our older folks, donors are being replaced by younger donors. Yeah. And I actually think so, you know, some charities are focused on plan giving with older donors, but millennials are kind of, they're in their forties now. This is a prime time to have conversations with millennials who are, you know, who've, you know, been privileged enough to have some wealth to think about in terms of giving to charity. And they have all this competition, as we mentioned, they could, you know, give it to in GoFundMe or or whatever form of DAF, you could try to develop that relationship now with them. Uh, and um, if you can if you can develop and use the same tools that you engaged older folks and and use some of those tools and bring in some of your younger folks that you've previously engaged to be working for the organization as well, so that they can have these discussions with donors who are their peers in in age. You know, I, I think that is very valuable. So the no, you know fundraising. I'd like to just put a, a point on it so that uh, folks who know me and have heard me speak, you know, don't think that I'm a hypocrite. Uh, you know, in all the training I do, I'm talking about launching planned giving. And in launching planned giving, I think your your time is best spent with folks who are 55 to 60 and over because they are the most likely to include you in their long-term plan. I'm typically talking about wills. Um, and they're most likely that uh, they're the most likely folks that will keep your gift in their will versus someone in their 30s and 40s who is going to live for another 50 years or so. That's a, you know that's a long that's a long time to be in someone's will. So in launching, I I, uh, I think the the time is best spent talking to folks who are again roughly 60 and over. But in in our years of a program, planned giving program, I can certainly see value in talking to folks in their 30s, 40s, um, the, and, and doing that with, with peers. It's, I, I, you know, it's just, it's, as you're suggesting, there's just a, there's just a, a shared experience when, you know, a couple of 30-year-olds are talking to each other versus me as a 61-year-old consultant or even frontline fundraiser talking to someone half my age about putting the organization in your will. Yeah, and I I agree with your point, Tony. When you have limited resources and you're starting or initiating a plan giving program, the, the age set that you you gave mm. makes the most you know sense uh, for you. Um, but it it is it is another point just to say 
think about engaging younger people um, and, and, and on both sides, on, on the staffing side and volunteer side, as well as uh, on your donor side. Um, and you know, think about groups that you can develop long relationships with. So when you want to finally, you know, if, if you're constantly engaged with them for the next 30 or 40 years, you, you really feel that gift is going to be fixed. But yes, they could change their minds at any time. Um, so it, it sort of demands that you make sure that you strengthen that relationship year after year versus not you know, giving them any touches at all and in the way they like. So that might be using gamification, social media, like other ways that they want to be engaged. You'll have to find not the way that you feel is easiest or cheapest to engage with yeah. your group. You have to find what do they want? How do they want to be engaged? And this goes back to... Traditional lessons of fundraising that we want to be relational, not transactional. So you need to be relational with this upcoming uh, cohort of generations, the M's and the Z's, um, because they are your future. They're your future major donors if they're not now. They're your future plan giving donors. They're your future volunteers in retirement. I mean, you you want to be this, and this goes to the sustainability as well. You know, you, you want your mission to survive. You need to have a pipeline of donors uh, that are not all 65 and over. Yeah. And I'll kind of relate fundraising to technology as well, because, you know, our technology will dictate in some ways how we decide to fundraise. Like now we've got, you know, um, we went from letter, you know, paper and pen sort of solicitations and in-person contacts to, okay, emails. And now emails are sort of, we're getting to a post-email phase of like text messaging or, you know, and, and other forms now um, of communication and how will that impact fundraising, crowd uh, funding and, and other sort of platform type uh, fundraising is now sort of encountering new legal uh, uh, barriers or restrictions or limitations, California being one of the first ones with laws that came into effect this year and uh, regulations that will come into effect next year. And that, that's usually a harbinger of things to come in other states as well. So the laws are going to change. The types of fundraising vehicles are going to change. Nonprofits would be really wise to engage some millennials and Gen Z to understand where these things may go and how these you know laws might be um, uh, influenced in terms of advocacy and 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 making sure that you know one bad actor is not creating a whole bunch of restrictions that are going to impact like a lot of other charities that should never have been bothered by by this artificial intelligence understanding what it is, what its uses are, what the boundaries are. We've, we've seen some institutions make big mistakes. Um, there, was a, there was a college that reacted to the shooting at Michigan State University with a, with a, with a, um, a chat GPT email. And then in, in, it was disclosed because they didn't even think to take out the disclaimer that said created by chat GPT. You know, and, and, uh, what uh, I can't remember what college that was. That it was not Michigan State. They were. It was a college reacting to the Michigan State shooting, uh, and and doing it very badly. I think it was. I think it was Vanderbilt University. One of the one of the colleges at at Vanderbilt University, um, and it was even a, a DEI officer who sent the email. So you know, 
not even thinking about, you know, inclusive language on her own, but relying on, on artificial intelligence. So, you know, the boundaries of artificial intelligence, the creative uses of it, um, you know, concerns about deep fake AI, you know, that stuff is, that stuff is all relevant and it's, it's coming. It, I mean, it's here, it, it's here now, it's not coming, it's here. And if you want to capitalize on it appropriately, I think it, it pays to have folks who understand it best and they're probably not 50 or 60 years old. Yeah, and I agree with you 100%. And again, wrapping this back around to charitability, um, fake news, um, is it charitable to distribute fake news? Is that just a viewpoint? Is what we considered fake news 50 years ago something that actually is something that we think is generally acceptable now? Um, and isn't charity supposed to be an incubator for these new ideas and uh, changes? So um, it's tricky. Um, but again, we want to have multiple perspectives on this, not just sort of one generation's perspective on this or just older generation's perspective on this. We need to have the younger generation's perspective because ultimately they're going to be the ones that control that law. That feels like a pretty good place to leave things. Uh, is there anything else? But I'll give you give you last chance. Anything we haven't talked about that that you want to? We we, we have time if if there's something else you want to engage on. Um, I, maybe just my my last thought is is um, for all the generations to respect kind of what what we all have to offer. And um, this is not meant to be a criticism of older generations. Um, uh, it, it's really meant to say, let's be more engaged um, as multi-generational organizations for sustainability, for understanding, for perspectives, and just to do uh, our jobs uh, in, in a way that's uh, aligns with our values and is as effective and efficient as possible. Gene Takagi, our legal contributor, managing editor of the wildly popular nonprofit law blog, You'll find that at nonprofitlawblog.com. His firm is at neolawgroup.com. And Gene is at GTAK, G-T-A-K. Gene, thank you so much for your wisdom. Always a pleasure, Tony. Thank you. And, and mine. Next week, Matt Scott returns with his new book, The High Growth Nonprofit. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by DonorBox. With intuitive fundraising software from DonorBox, your donors give four times faster. Helping you help others. DonorBox.org. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great! <laughs>